Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good day, and thank you for standing by. Welcome to the third quarter 2021 Financial Results Conference Call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you will need to press star 1 on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star 0. I would now like to hand the conference over to your speaker today, Saran Alikan. Please go ahead. Thank you, operator, and good morning, everyone. My name is Farhan Ali Khan, the company's senior vice president of corporate development and investor relations. And thank you for joining us to discuss GoEasy Limited results for the third quarter ended September 30th, 2021. The news release, which was issued yesterday after the close of market, is available on Globe Newswire and on the GoEasy website. Today, Jason Mullins, GoEasy's President and Chief Executive Officer, will review the results for the third quarter and provide an outlook for the business. Hal Curry, the company's Chief Financial Officer, will also provide an overview of our capital and liquidity position. Jason Appel, the company's Chief Risk Officer, is also on the call. After the prepared remarks, we will then open the lines for questions from investors. Before we begin, I remind you that this conference call is open to all investors and is being webcast through the company's investor website and supplemented by a quarterly earnings presentation. For those dialing in directly by phone, the presentation can also be found directly on our investor site. All shareholders, analysts, and portfolio managers are welcome to ask questions over the phone after management has finished the prepared remarks. The operator will call for questions and will provide instructions at the appropriate time. Business media are welcome to listen to this call and to use management's comments and responses to questions in any coverage. However, we would ask that, that they do not quote callers unless that individual has granted their consent. Today's discussion may contain forward-looking statements. I'm not going to read the full statement, but will direct you to our the caution regarding forward-looking statements included in the MDNA. I will now turn the call over to Jason Mullins. Uh, thanks, Farhan, and welcome to today's call, everyone. During the third quarter, we continued to execute on our strategy to become Canada's leading non-prime consumer lender by developing a range of products and channels that position us to become the single trusted source of credit for those unable to borrow from traditional banks. Our integration with LendCare is going well, and we are on track to produce the synergies and accretion forecast during our acquisition. As consumer demand began to gradually improve with the reduction of economic lockdowns throughout the summer months, we began to ramp up marketing efforts, investing $7.7 million in an integrated media campaign, including TV, radio, digital, and out of home. The improved demand and increased marketing spend led to a lift in direct lending activity through our retail branch network and digital platforms, with a corresponding reduction in the cost per direct new customer acquisition by over 35% compared to the same quarter last year. In August, we also launched the next generation of our Easy Financial website, which will experience further enhancements over the coming months. The new site has helped to reduce bounce rates 
increase the average time our consumers spend navigating and educating themselves on our site and lifting traffic conversion rates. With the increased ad spend aided by these digital improvements, we saw a record level of web traffic in the quarter, translating into record application volume. Our branch network also expanded to 285 locations with 10 new branches open in the quarter. We also continued to experience continued growth in indirect lending, led by the expansion of our fastest growing channel, our point of sale financing network. During the quarter, 25% of all new loans we issued were to finance the purchase of goods and services, such as retail items, power sports equipment, healthcare procedures, or home renovations under either the Easy Financial or LendCare brand up from 18% in the same quarter of the prior year. As of this week, we also completed the integration of our easy financial credit models into the LendCare point-of-sale platform frontline. By building a credit waterfall and merging into one platform, we can now offer our merchant network a higher approval rate while providing consumers with a wider range of rates and terms to match their credit profile. Lastly, we were pleased to complete partnerships with Heisen Motors and GBA brands providers of power sports products and e-bikes. We also made great progress building our position in the non-prime automotive lending market. Through our investment in LendCare, we acquired a platform upon which we could grow the auto finance program through the dealer channel, aided by a logistics and business development capability that did not previously exist. With a growing network of over 1,500 dealers, combined with the recently launched direct-to-consumer offering, we are confident we can be a leading provider of non-prime auto financing in Canada. Together, auto financing represented over 4% of the new loans we issued in the quarter, an entirely new category for the company. All combined, total loan originations during the quarter were a record $436 million, up 52% over the $286 million produced in the third quarter of 2020, and a sequential increase of over 15% from the $379 million in total loan originations in the second quarter of this year. The lift in originations led to record organic loan growth of $101 million during the quarter, resulting in the consumer loan portfolio finishing at $1.9 billion, up 60% from $1.18 billion at the end of the third quarter in 2020. Through the use of graduating consumers to lower-tier pricing and the continuing shift in product mix, we continue to bring down the weighted average interest rate in our portfolio, albeit the rate of decline has begun to slow as we inch closer toward the optimal portfolio yield. During the quarter, the weighted average interest rate on the portfolio declined slightly from 33.7 to 33.6%. Combined with ancillary revenue sources, the total portfolio yield finished within our forecasted range at 40.8%. Total revenue in the quarter was a record $220 million, up 36% over the same period in 2020. We also continued to experience stable credit performance within the portfolio. While the economic reopening that is now driving demand and growth will result in credit performance normalizing to within our guided and optimal range. During the quarter, the annualized net charge-off rate was 8.3%, slightly below our target and up from the pandemic-related low point experienced in the third quarter of 2020. During the quarter, we also decreased our loan loss provision slightly from 7.9 to 7.83%, reflecting the new structural credit risk of the portfolio and the overall economic environment. We believe our provision rate now fairly accounts for how we expect our credit to perform over the coming year. After adjusting for non-recurring and unusual items, adjusted operating income was a record $85.8 million, an increase of 51% over the third quarter of 2020. 
While we continue to invest in the business, specifically our technology platforms, data infrastructure, new product research, and tools that improve the productivity and performance of our teams, we also continue to experience the operating leverage from scale. Adjusted operating margin for the second quarter was 39.1%, up from 35.2% in the prior year. During the quarter, we also recorded another $23.2 million before tax fair value gain on our investments, primarily due to the increase in the value of common shares of a firm and our expectation of vesting. Finally, net income in the third quarter was $63.5 million, compared to $33.1 million in the same period of 2020, which resulted in diluted earnings per share of $3.66, up 75% compared to $209 in the third quarter of 2020. After adjusting for non-recurring and unusual items on an after-tax basis, including the fair value gain on those investments, adjusted net income was a record $46.7 million, up 48% from $31.6 million in 2020, while adjusted diluted earnings per share was a record $2.70, up 35% from $2 in the third quarter of 2020. Return on assets was a healthy 7.6% on an adjusted basis, producing an adjusted return on equity of 24% above our targeted level of 22% plus, while return on tangible common equity lifted to 42.9% in the quarter. I'll now pass it over to Hal to discuss our balance sheet and capital position before providing some comments on our outlook. Thanks, Jason. During the third quarter, we continued to strengthen our balance sheet and capital position due to the strong free cash flow generation of the business and the return on our investments. During the quarter, the cash provided by operating activities before the net growth and gross consumer loans was a record $89.2 million. In July, we also unwound the previously implement, implemented total return swap, which was used to hedge our exposure and secure our capital gains on the non-contingent portion of our shares in a firm related to the prior sale of our equity in Paybright. As such, total proceeds from the sale of shares and settlement of the swap was $87.8 million of cash flow during the quarter. Net inbound cash flows enabled us to fully self-fund $101 million of net growth in the consumer loan portfolio during the quarter while using the excess cash to fund our dividend to shareholders and pay down approximately $74.5 million of debt. During the quarter, we also officially closed on the amended securitization warehouse facility provided by National Bank Capital Markets with a new three-year term and an increase in capacity from $200 million to $600 million while concurrently improving the eligibility criteria and advance rates. The amended facility is now priced at a Canadian dollar offer rate plus 185 basis points. Based on the current one-month CEDAW rate of 0.43% as of November 3, 2021, the interest rate on our incremental draws would be 2.28%. We also continue to utilize an interest rate swap agreement to generate fixed rate payments on the amounts drawn, which mitigates against the impact of any increases to interest rates. Given the strength in cash flows and enhanced funding facilities, we have reduced our leverage and increased our liquidity. Based on the cash at hand at the end of the quarter and the current borrowing capacity, we now have approximately $908 million in total funding capacity which we estimate is sufficient to fund our organic growth plans beyond 2023. We also estimate that once our currently available sources of capital are fully utilized, we could continue to grow the loan portfolio by approximately $200 million per year solely from internal cash flows. 
In addition to the increased liquidity, the strong cash flows led to a reduction in our leverage level, which reduced to a net debt to net capitalization ratio of 62%, well below our target of 70%. The lower level of leverage means we are carrying approximately $180 million of excess capital capacity on our balance sheet that we can use for opportunistic or strategic investments, such as share repurchases and acquisitions. Lastly, as our capital stack has evolved towards a higher proportion of secured funding, we have been able to realize meaningful reductions in our cost of debt. During the quarter, our fully drawn weighted average cost of borrowing reduced to 4.3%, down from 5% in the prior year, with incremental draws on our new securitization facility now bearing a rate of approximately 2.3% prior to the cost of any interest rate hedge. With such a strong capital position, we can continue to fund our organic growth plans while also investing in the business and pursuing new expansion opportunities. I'll now pass the call back over to Jason to update you on our outlook. Thanks, Al. Uh, With the final months of the year in front of us, we are pleased that the rate of vaccination in Canada has led to a gradual reopening of the economy, the reduction of government stimulus, and a return to more typical economic and consumer trends. This results in more normalized credit performance, but more importantly, a robust and meaningful rate of growth in our consumer loan portfolio, which leads to stronger long-term profitability and shareholder returns. We remain focused on our strategy to develop a full suite of lending products offered through a wide range of distribution channels while helping everyday Canadians improve their financial health. We are on track to finish the year within or better than the ranges for all of our forecasted metrics published for 2021 with confidence in our outlook to grow the portfolio close to $3 billion in 2023. In the upcoming fourth quarter, we continue to ramp up our investments in marketing, with approximately $9 million in spend to continue our media campaign, with TV, digital, and radio running through the balance of year. As such, we expect to grow the consumer loan portfolio between $100 and $110 million during the quarter. On the revenue side, we expect the total yield generated on the consumer loan portfolio to lift slightly, to between 40.5 and 41.5%, while the economic environment and consumer spending levels driving our loan growth results in the net charge-off rate returning to within our guided range, which we forecast to finish between 9.5 and 10.5% in the quarter. As we close on the prepared remarks, I want to thank our team once again for the work they have put in to take great care of our customers and advance our vision. Collectively, the team is not only producing record results, but they are making significant advances in the development of our lending platform, including increasing our use of alternative data, enhancing our analytics to optimize portfolio performance, improving our digital capabilities, and developing new distribution and growth channels. As evidence of their great work, we are privileged to have been included in the TSX 30 this past quarter for the second time as one of the top performing stocks for total cumulative shareholder return. In addition, we became certified by the Great Place to Work Institute of Canada for our team's culture and the pride they put into their work, and I could not be prouder of them. With those prepared remarks complete, we will now open the call for questions. As a reminder, as a reminder, as a question, you will need to press star one on your telephone. To withdraw your question, press the pound key. Press the pound key. Please stand by while we compile the Q&A roster. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. 
Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, Our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hopefully, this is the last time you hear this ad. With Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts or at least grab an extra latte. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details. Our first question comes from the line of Etienne Ricard from VMO Capital Markets. Your line is open. Thank you and good morning. Good morning, Etienne. Uh, Jason, last quarter we talked about the initial integration of, of Landcare as it relates to uh, revenue synergies. Could you provide an update on this front? And uh, specifically, I, I know Landcare was in the process of, of providing uh, pre-approval financing on, on merchants' websites. How is this progressing? Uh, yeah, great questions. Um, so. Uh, in the first revenue synergy, which I highlighted uh, in my comments, uh, we were looking to integrate the easy financial non-prime credit models into the LendCare point-of-sale platform, so creating a credit waterfall that would allow us to capture incremental originations from the merchant base that they've developed and the, and the additional merchants they're adding. Uh, that integration actually just went live this week. Uh, so as of this week, we are slowly turning on merchants whereby the customers that LendCare would have previously declined are now able to get qualified for financing through the easy financial credit models, which we expect will generate incremental originations and revenue. Uh, Obviously, we'll be uh, slow and steady with expanding that program. So although it'll start this week, its contribution in Q4 will be more minimal. That will, uh, frankly, be one of the major drivers for growth next year. Um, Second uh, revenue synergy was to cross-sell customers within both, both bases, each other's products. Uh, We've just started doing the analytics to overlay the customer base from each group and figure out which other products each consumer set would qualify for, and we anticipate we'll be in a position to start uh, making uh, pre-approved loan offers of other products uh, later this month uh, and and begin to scale that up again, contributing to growth next year. And as it relates to your last question about uh, the ability to pre-approve customers directly on merchant websites, we're also very close to completing that as well. Uh, We're talking with a number of merchants right now about putting the pre-approval capability on their site so customers 
uh, can get financing before they actually go shopping, I suspect will be up and running uh, with at least a couple of merchant websites within the next couple months. Again, all contributing to uh, growth for next year and beyond. Understood. And on auto lending, I think you mentioned it's about 4% of the originations in Q3. Could you share details as, as to the mix between your new direct-to-consumer product relative to uh, Landcare's uh, point-of-sale auto product? And, and trying to look into next year, what, what are your growth expectations for, for both products? Yeah, sure. Um, so majority of the auto lending so far is actually through the dealer channel. Um, Landcare had been uh, building a dealer network and the capabilities to do lending through the dealer network for a number of years prior to uh, our investment. So that, that product was positioned really well to get investment and scale uh, pretty quickly. And, uh, and given that the business was um, uh, integrated with dealer track, which is the platform that dealers use to pr uh, produce financing, turning it on and ramping it up quickly has been, has been uh, fairly straight, straightforward and, the team's done a great job there. On the direct-to-consumer side, we started, we launched the product and started advertising over the course of the quarter. Uh, we've seen great traffic. Um, so far, the volumes have been okay. More, more volume we're seeing through the dealer channel. I suspect that the shift to consumer buying uh, behaviors uh, toward getting pre-approved for financing for vehicles is a, is a new shift for Canadians. That's a, a different way of going about financing vehicles. So I think we, we expect that will be a slower build, probably contributing more next year and, and, and beyond. Uh, so we're really looking at the auto program as a combined offering, being able to allow consumers to either go to the dealer or come and get pre-approved uh, from us. Um, and we're, you know, somewhat indifferent about which channel that they choose because we can get the same returns either way. Okay, great. And on, on buy now, pay later, a firm announced uh, – meaningful partnerships in the U.S. with Amazon, for example. Uh, the extent this partnership moves north of the U.S. border, how do you think GoEasy is positioned to, to partner with a firm should non-prime consumers be, be offered financing? Yeah, so we, we continue to build a great partnership with the firm. Um, uh, they are, as you noted, continuing to add some really great uh, big brand partnerships, uh, many of them launching initially in the U.S., as you noted, and have the potential to come to Canada. Uh, all of the partnerships that they launch, we believe there's some level of opportunity uh, for us to be collaborative and constructive. So uh, it really just depends on the particular merchant, uh, the type of customer base that they have, uh, the type of product size. You know, in some cases, the products are really small ticket or the consumers skew very heavily towards prime, and it doesn't always make sense for there to be a second-look non-prime offering. But there's quite a number that I think, as they add those merchants in Canada, could provide opportunity for us as well. So we're actively keeping that dialogue open, and while we don't have any major commitments at the moment, um, we feel pretty optimistic about, about some of the new things that could emerge through the Affirm relationship. Great. Thank you for your comments. Your next question comes from the line of Gary Hill from Dejardins Capital Markets. Your line is open. 
Great, thanks, and uh, good morning. Just wanted to um, go back to the net charge off guidance uh, for the Q4. Uh, I guess more of a two-part question. Um, can you help bridge the step up from 8.3 and Q3 to maybe 10% when you take the midpoint of that guidance? That's a decent size gap there. And then just second, maybe walk us through on a monthly basis in 3Q, and if you have the October number handy, you know, are you seeing that gradually trend up to that middle of that range there? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'll answer the second part of the question. So yes, we, we've started to see the normalization of credit throughout the third quarter and into the fourth quarter uh, as we expected. It's corresponding pretty proportionately with what we anticipated the correlation would be to demand and growth. So if we look back over the entire pandemic period, uh, when the growth and the demand was softer, that tended to be the quarter or the falling quarter where uh, losses were, were lower. And then as demand and growth began to accelerate, losses began to normalize. So you know, we're quite pleased with the situation given that it now looks like as we go into Q4, the broader economic environment is pretty close to being out of the pandemic and at, uh, we believe, normal steady state. Uh, this will be two consecutive quarters now of driving loan growth in excess of $100 million a quarter. Uh, losses look like they'll now come in right in line with our target and expected range. So um, so that step up would be what we were previously planning expected, and we expect that now new level of growth rate and losses to be uh, what we'll see continue into 2022 based on the guidance we provided. Okay, and was part of it due to the mix as well? I noticed your revenue guidance um, a little bit higher for the quarter. Um, can we talk about maybe is there a shift there versus what you what you expected before? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So if you think about the range that we've provided for both yields and losses and the fact we provide two points of range in both of those metrics, the reason for that is that we – predict a certain product mix between the range of products and a certain credit mix. And depending on how the mix of the product shift, you could have a scenario where the losses are in the higher end of the range, but typically that would mean yield will be in the higher end of the range as well, and vice versa. So if you think about the customer journey that we're building, when a customer applies for credit, uh, we're trying to approve and screen them for all of our products and then give them the choice. And what that means is if you give a customer an approval for an unsecured loan and a home equity loan, the example in that, in that case, the example would be the difference between losses that are in the low double digits or the low single digits. And so we make a, pr a prediction about what we think that product mix is going to be. But if that product mix evolves slightly different, uh, then you might have a case where, similar to what we're seeing in this coming quarter, yield actually ticks up a little bit in correspondence with losses and that preserves largely the risk-adjusted margin. So um, although we feel pretty comfortable that the range accounts for the variations of product mix, it, it is likely to fluctuate within that range given that, you know, we can't precisely predict the exact mix of the, how the products are going to evolve, but we feel like we've got a pretty good handle on the range they're likely to fall in. Okay, makes make sense. And then my next, uh, next question, um, maybe for Jason Appel here, can you – Kind of talk me through the change in the FLI methodology. I think you moved from a three scenario to a five scenario and moving to Moody's uh, analytics as well. You know, obviously there's you know the inflation and oil price forecast been volatile post Q3. 
how may how may this impact the allowance rate for Q4, if uh, if any? Yeah, sure, Gary. Uh, let's take the first question first. Um, you'll recall that up until this past quarter, we used to take the four macroeconomic variables: uh, oil, inflation, GDP, and unemployment. Uh, we used to pull those metrics from the uh, averages of the Canadian banks and essentially put them together uh, in a series of three scenarios, optimistic, pessimistic, and neutral, uh, and effectively build those scenarios ourselves. Uh, what we've now done in making the shift uh, with Moody's is we've now pulled that uh, data directly from Moody's and are now relying on Moody's independent uh, forecasts that contemplate how all four of those variables will perform under a series of different scenarios uh, and weighting those scenarios accordingly based on management's view. So really what's changed quarter over quarter is we now have a more of an enhanced view by having two more scenarios added in. We have a broad range view of both pessimistic, optimistic, and neutral uh, views of those variables and are weighting them based on management's uh, guidance on how we think things will unfold. So overall, we would view that as an improvement. As for how that's likely to impact the provision in Q4, I mean, look, I'd love to say that we're, we're prognosticators of where the economy is going. Suffice it to say that we're, we're we're not expecting to see significant shifts in those variables, partly because um, each of those variables exerts a different type of influence on how the portfolio works. Um, it's not unrealistic to see shifts in FLIs. We've seen those in the past historically, but I wouldn't expect there to be material movements in the provision overall based on the macroeconomic shifts of the FLIs, unless those FLIs themselves happen to undergo a major change. Uh, and at this point, we don't anticipate that based on the data coming out of Moody's uh, at this stage. Gary, I would just add to that, um, one of the advantages of moving to Moody's model that, that, as Jason said, actually predicts realistic economic scenarios is rather than taking each variable independently and taking the worst case scenario of each indep independent variable, this, this model uses actual real likely economic scenarios. And so what that means is sometimes those variables uh, don't all move in the same direction. For example, in Moody's example of a more opportunistic economic outlook, if the economy is performing well, they've got inflation rising because the production of the economy is very strong. That, that combined with the fact there's five scenarios means we actually think there'll be less volatility, i.e. the overlay of the FLIs will be more realistic uh, and uh, stretch out more uh, weighting across multiple scenarios, uh, therefore resulting in more stability. So uh, as Jason said, unless there's a dramatic swing in the outlook on the economy that we're not anticipating or not seeing, uh, we, we feel like this loss rate provision today is fairly accounting for the loss risk in the book and should remain fairly stable. Perfect. Okay, and then um, just my last question here. Sounds like the auto launch is going well, the reopening driving growth, and the Lencare platform, you're signing on new partners. You know, the, the net organic loan book grew $101 million in the quarter, which was at the lower end of your 100 to $120 million guidance. Maybe can you walk me through the disconnect here? You know, what were some variables um, that offset the growth versus your expectations at the, you know, um, in the last call? And more importantly, you know, how, how do you think about these variables might play out in Q4 and, uh, and into 2022? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, uh, clearly Q3 was probably a little bit more difficult to predict as precisely as I think Q4 and beyond will be, uh, just given, you know, as we entered the early summer months of Q3, there were still, uh, you know, some moving moving variables with regards to COVID, 
uh, various provinces hadn't fully uh, reopened yet. And so just just a few variables that made it hard to predict the exact number. Uh, you know, we, we felt like the range that we provided was uh, properly accounting for the, the different scenarios. And, and, you know, I think that's how it played out. We came in within the range uh, in terms of uh, growth. Uh, probably the one other variable that um, we've seen is in some cases the strength of the consumer on certain product categories like power sports and home equity lending has actually resulted in really healthy repayment trends where they've prepaid some of those loans early. And, uh, and, and, and as a result, that can also contribute to the dynamics between originations and loan growth. We did see a little bit more of that in the summer than, we, uh, than we've normally seen. So net-net, that's you know, fairly positive behavior, so it doesn't, doesn't really bother us. But those would be just some of the you know, considerations, I guess, in terms of where things shook out in terms of growth in the third quarter at uh, just over $100 million. In terms of the outlook for Q4, feeling, you know, pretty confident in that, in that range and that outlook based on where we sit today, based on what we've seen in the last four or five weeks. It feels like, again, being that we're back to a slightly more state of normalcy in terms of consumer trends and behavior, uh, you know, our confidence level in being able to predict uh, and forecast the outcome of the business just, just continues to get stronger. And that's also why we, you know, tried to tighten up the range of our expected growth for this quarter as well. Okay, great. Thanks for the color of those. Uh, that's it for me. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Stephen Boland from Raymond James. Your line is open. Uh, morning, everyone. Uh, two questions. The first is, um, you mentioned your partnership with a firm and, and you're developing that, that partnership. Uh, I guess I'm curious then, uh, you know, why the, the sell the shares at, at this point? Um, or, or is that partnership and the sale of those shares kind of independent of each other? Um, like in terms of are you sending a signal to a firm that you're not supportive of the stock, I guess is the question. Yeah, no, good good question. So, no, the, the partnership and the equity holdings are, are very independent. Um, uh, firm looks at our commercial partnership specifically and independently. Uh, we have a very, very good working relationship. Uh, feel very confident in our ability to continue to build on that partnership. They, they understand that, uh, you know, we make these investments, hold these investments, and sell these investments based on what makes sense for us, our balance sheet, our risk tolerance, our capital allocation strategy. Uh, the, the firm investments and the partnership itself are not commingled. They fully understand that we're not in the business of, you know, investing and holding in public securities long term, um, and therefore the decision to put the prior hedge in, to then sell the non-contingent shares when they, when they fully matured uh, in order to be able to strengthen our balance and improve our liquidity position, they would fully understand and, and that would be consistent with our, our management of our capital. So um, they, they don't see that as a signal from us that we don't have confidence in their business. We think they have a fantastic business. And frankly, that's why if you look at the quantum of the uh, remaining shares that we have, uh, and the fact that many of them remain unhedged because of our confidence in the outlook, it, it, that's just a signal that we still feel very good about that business and where it's headed. Okay. And I guess the second question is when, when you first started talking about uh, lending into the auto space uh, and going direct to consumer, I mean, you did a big evaluation on the industry uh, going through the dealers. Um, and I think you, you kind of said you didn't want to do that, go to the dealers and do something different. 
what was the what is Lencare doing that uh, makes this product, I guess, you know, suitable for you um, to go into the dealers? Um, you know, is is there something that they did different that you didn't evaluate or something at the at the time that you decided not to do it? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So. Obviously, uh, up and until when we made the investment in LendCare, our whole business was predominantly direct-to-consumer in nature. So the expertise in marketing and advertising, bringing customers directly to us and our digital platform and our branch network, evaluating them for credit. So for us, the strategy to focus on direct-to-consumer as the right strategic move was, for us, a no-brainer. That was the expertise we had. Uh, through the investment in LendCare, we now acquired a business that had really its entire operating platform was predicated on business development capabilities, so going out and acquiring, signing up, and supporting merchants and dealers, the back-end infrastructure to support registering liens on secured assets and recovering on those assets if they were ever to uh, default, uh, the underwriting practices that go into not just underwriting alone but assessing a dealer or a merchant and whether or not they're a good partner to do business with, we, we acquired all of that skill and expertise in that logistics platform overnight. Now, while we didn't intentionally do so for specifically auto lending, it was much more about the other broad range of point-of-sale verticals. As we got in there and looked at what they built and what they had and where the opportunities were for growth, it became very clear it was a great opportunity where the, uh, the, the, the degree of complexity and investment needed to try and capture growth in that channel was much, much smaller uh, given it had already been developed. In the end, we conclude that whether it's auto or any other point-of-sale vertical, we want to be offering the products both to the consumer directly and allow them to obtain them from a merchant or a retailer directly themselves as well, that true omni-channel model. Uh, so that's how we end up concluding it made sense to build out both channels. In terms of what's helping make them successful, look, I think our experience has now been in the dealer network um, you really have to have a fulsome combination of a really great product for the customer, a great relationship with the dealer where you provide them excellent support, a good economic arrangement that the customer is going to be interested in. Um, you really have to have kind of a sum of the parts uh, of good service and good product, and, and LendCare brings that, so we've been able to generate some great success. Uh, the other thing I would note is when we look at the dealer or the, any other point-of-sale channel, one of the things that is a distinct competitive point of advantage for us is that we have a full suite of other lending products. So we don't have to look at the business solely from the unit economics of just that first loan transaction. We can look at the lifetime value of the customer based on their propensity to be cross-sold into other products. So what we anticipate is that customers we acquire on an auto loan through the dealer channel will have a high propensity to then borrow other products from us unsecured loans, home equity loans, products we build in the future, and that means that if we provide a good competitive solution within the dealer network, we can actually also have a competitive point of differentiation that will help on pricing and credit approval rates when we go to cross-sell those customers into the rest of our ecosystem. So all of that is kind of the, the background as to how we get to the point that we now think it makes sense to be able to offer consumers this product through both channels. Okay, that's very helpful. Thanks, Jason. Your next question comes from the line of Jarrett Fenwick from Cormark Security. Your line is open. 
Hi, good morning, everyone. Um, so, Jason, I just wanted to circle back on the, the growth guidance for, for the loan book through the, uh, the last quarter of the year here and just kind of reconcile it against, you know, all, all we've been seeing in terms of the growth metrics in terms of same-store sales growth being very high. Um, you know, Lencare had been growing its loan book sort of 40 50% annualized over the last couple of years. And now we're sort of looking at a quarter where the incremental ad's going to be effectively flat, I guess, with what we saw in the third quarter. So could you just maybe walk through what the, the moving parts are there? Is it a bit of seasonality or prepayments or some other factor there that, that might account for that? Yeah, sure. So if you, if you actually look, uh, look back at uh, pre-pandemic uh, periods, say, for example, the three years prior to 2020, 2017, 2018, and 2019, in two of those three years, the net loan growth in the third and fourth quarters were identical. Uh, in fact, if you look at 2019, uh, the growth in the third and fourth quarter in, uh, was $75 million in each quarter ind- individually. Uh, so very consistent. So what we tend to see is that the third quarter is strengthened by July and specifically September. We get a bit of a lull in uh, in in uh, August. Uh, the fourth quarter, October, and specifically December, especially the back part of December, is quite slow. But we get a really big November. And the net effect of that is when you look at it by month month to month, you get these different seasonality points, such that the growth and net growth in the third and fourth quarter end up being pretty comparable. Uh, the other thing that's still evolving is that when we look at the seasonality of direct-to-consumer lending, particularly cash lending, it doesn't have the same seasonal trends as the point-of-sale lending that, say, a LendCare does. Think about, for example, financing power sports equipment. The time in which you go to apply for financing for power sports equipment is going to correspond with when you want to get that equipment in preparation for the upcoming season, and that doesn't necessarily correspond when consumers are looking for cash loans. So I think our seasonal trends are uh, are evolving a little bit. Um, lastly, in terms of the book growth, we will see a step up in originations in the fourth quarter, obviously because the loan book is going to be uh, larger and charge off rates are normalized, we will actually see a pretty healthy step up in loan originations, uh, but given then the higher uh, uh, payment drag, you will end up with similar net growth uh, quarter on quarter. So those are some of the, the dynamics and, and, and why from our perspective it looks to us like we're sort of back to a, a pretty close to very normal state when we consider what we're seeing in the Q3 versus Q4 trends around loan originations and growth. Okay, that's, uh, that's helpful color. Thank you. And I guess my second question here is about um, the, the falling cost of funds here. And it's a bit of a modeling question uh, around the securitization facility. And that, that balance moved around certainly sequentially in the quarter, so it's not easy to see. But in terms of the reported interest uh, relative to the balance, it, it looks like the, the effective rate there something more like 3.75% or 4%. Um, you're suggesting incremental draws are coming at much lower than that. Is, is there something in there that we need to be, be mindful of when we're modeling the actual reported interest cost off the securitization facility that might be a bit higher versus the, uh, the real rate that you're paying in the business? Yeah, Jeff, so it's Hal here. So as, as a reminder, uh, we actually hedge uh, those securitization draws. So the the coupon rate that we're quoting at 2.3%, we then uh, enter into a, a fixed rate uh, uh, a hedge on, on those draws, and, and that naturally is going to, uh, you know, increase the, uh, the effective rate. Okay. And, but, but still now, as you're, as you're moving forward and, and, and begin to load more, uh, more loan assets or fund them with that facility, 
we should see that sort of effective rate um, effectively, you know, begin to fall for you guys over the, the next few quarters. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Um, and if you look at our overall uh, debt stack, uh, currently in terms of um, our drawn facilities are roughly about two-thirds of the overall debt stack. So uh, we do expect that with the incremental draws that we're taking on the securitization, which, uh, you know, are at great rates and, and uh, you know, below uh, sort of the, uh, the other balances in terms of the high-yield notes, we, sh we should continue to expect that uh, effective rate to come down quite nicely. Jeff, it's actually it's actually one of the reasons that uh, when we when we get inquiries about the broader rising rate environment, for us one of the advantages is not only is as Hal said, the draws that we're taking on the facility being hedged in order to fix the interest expense on each draw going forward, because the incremental debt that we're going to be drawing to fund the growth for the next while now is coming from that lower cost secured funding, which sits well below the weighted average rate that we're paying on the balance sheet, because as Hal said, two-thirds of the debt stack is still the higher-priced, high-yield notes, even if, in, if it's a rising interest rate environment, uh, because of that shift to secured funding, uh, that might slow the rate of decline, but it leaves us less exposed to the risk of actually any increases in the effective rate we're paying. It's more likely we'll still see a decrease even in a slight rising rate environment just because of that shift towards secured funding at the lower cost. Yeah, thanks. That's, that's an important point to make there. Um, and then I just had one other question here on, on corporate costs. Uh, I know there were a couple items there that were one time in the quarter, but even adjusting for those, I mean, they, they've been progressively growing alongside the growth of the, the organization. You know, is, is there a point here where that rate of growth begins to taper, you know, in terms of percent of revenue? Does it fall below seven at some point, or, or do you still have a, a pretty big um, – set of initiatives there at the, the corporate level that you need to keep investing in that are going to keep those costs uh, growing? Yeah, generally speaking, I think we'll probably start to continue to see uh, scale. Uh, obviously, there's a step up there as we go through some of the investments we are making in this year, a major new product launch, a major new technology platform, uh, the integration of LendCare and the additional uh, merge of that corporate expense. So all of that results in a bit of a a uh, bit of a more wonky year in terms of the corporate cost line. Uh, as we look at kind of the next several years going out, obviously we're still going to continue to make healthy investments in the business because we feel we're at the early stages of our growth trajectory and there's a lot of things for us still to get done. But you will continue to see net-net scale leverage flowing through where the effective corporate costs relative to revenues will just keep slowly inching down every year as we drive more scale into the business. That's helpful color. Thank you. I'll, uh, I'll recue. Your next question comes from the line of Marcel McMean from TD Securities. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my question today. Um, I want to talk about uh, credit, um, particularly the, the stage three loans. You know, they've been the highest they've been, I guess, since pre-pandemic as a percentage of loans anyways. Um, just curious, you know, I guess this is a precursor, you know, for your guidance for the step up and charge-offs next quarter, but how is this evolving kind of relative to your own internal expectations um, and overall market dynamics? And are there any concerns within this, um, within this piece, whether that's geographic or, or to a specific tranche of borrower or anything that we should be aware of? 
So in strange enough, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that. I, I would say the, the distribution of the portfolio as it relates to the staging uh, under IFRS 9 is about where we expected it to be for the quarter. Uh, we've now guided it for the last couple of quarters that we are steadily rising up from the pre-pandemic lows that were brought on by tremendous government stimulus and a significant reduction in, in consumer discretionary spending. So as far as where the, the stage three bucketing is concerned, part of that is just uh, the day waiting of how the quarter ended, but also part of it is simply because we would expect to see a slight uptick in the, in the percentage of customers that roll through into that stage uh, due to delinquency, uh, which you can see in the MBNA from the quarter. Uh, but overall, as we, as we said before, that's very much uh, accompanied by a continued upswing in the overall level of demand for credit that we're seeing, which we overall tend to view as a very positive thing. As far as the losses and where they're coming from, there isn't any one market that's causing this concern, uh, despite the fact that you've got certain areas of the country under more of a COVID lockdown than others, Alberta being one example. We're not necessarily seeing our credit perform or underperform in those areas. Uh, comparison By comparison in Quebec, uh, we're seeing our credit uh, perform as you would expect. So there's, there's really no surprise in the quarter as far as how the, the staging has come together. And I think as we look out into the next quarter, uh, we would expect to see that stage three bucket continue to stay on or roughly about where it is. It is subject to some seasonal uh, ebbs and flows depending on, again, how the quarter is weighted in terms of the number of days and how the quarter ends. But overall, I'd say there's, there's really no unusual movements or surprises in how the actual distributions are structured. I would just, okay. uh, maybe just Maybe just add, Marcel, uh, the, the thing that I think is always important to note, and, and we've, we've um, highlighted this over the years as well, um, we are, we're running the business with the goal of trying to optimize the relationship between throughput, origination volume, and the number of customers we can approve, and what the net loss rate is then from that risk profile of consumer. And so ultimately, we can shift the loss rates down further over time if we were to choose to do so but it would come at the expense of very good profitable growth. Uh, likewise, if we thought it made sense to increase the risk tolerance, you could reverse that and drive more growth. We think that the ranges that we've provided for both yield and losses optimize the performance of the business. They optimize the relationship between the velocity and the volume and the approval rates and the net charge off rates that then that portfolio would produce. Um, so we don't, when we see losses graduate to the ranges that we have engineered the portfolio to be, when it's complemented by the proper velocity and origination volume that we're seeing, it, from our perspective, we actually gain great comfort because it says that we've dialed the uh, risk tolerance level correctly for what we would expect to see in terms of the relationship between growth and losses. Um, when losses are too low, you're, you're probably not generating good, healthy, profitable growth. So, it's important to understand that dynamic and that relationship and how we're trying to engineer uh, for this particular forecasted outcome. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, and then as a, a follow-up, um, uh, your allowances, they, they tick down slightly. Just wondering how you guys think about allowances going forward. Is this about the level you want to run at, or is it going to sort of evolve uh, potentially lower with, with your uh, improvement quality of your loan book? or? How should we think about allowance balances? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, given that the economy is generally moving back in step and that we've seen a decent strengthening of consumer demand in the last couple of quarters now, uh, you know, it would be our view that the provision is now accurately reflecting what we think the level of future loss risk is that is inherent in the portfolio. And I'd say at this stage, we'd expect some small movements in the provision uh, from quarter to quarter, but that's 
partially going to be driven by seasonality, uh, shifts in product mix that we've spoken about earlier, as well as changes in the forward-looking indicators. Uh, those are pretty much going to drive, you know, I would say modest changes from quarter to quarter. But I, I'd say we're probably at a state where we're, we're at the point we would expect to be, and we would expect maybe some gradual uh, decline, but nothing significantly material from where we are today. And favorable gradual decline, yes. Okay, perfect. Uh, and one last one for me. Um, just on the tax rate, I'm not sure if you guys have ever provided a, a range of what to expect. I know it bounces around a bit quarter to quarter. Kind of, have you, have you ever gotten to what we should expect that to be sort of over time, uh, what we can expect? Yeah, so, uh, Marcel Atal here. Uh, so in a normal state, I'd say we are probably somewhere in the range of 26 to 27%. Um, our uh, our gains that we've been realizing, those investment gains, obviously are capital gains and would be subject to, uh, you know, more preferential tax treatment. But uh, as you're kind of modeling out in terms of normal uh, operating income, I'd say somewhere in the range between 26 to 27%. Okay, perfect. All right, that's it for me. Thank you very much. Your next question comes from the line of Jamie Gloin from National Bank. Your line is open. Yeah, thanks. Uh, good morning. Uh, first question is just on uh, labor market. And uh, if you could uh, talk about what you're seeing uh, from that perspective uh, as it relates to both the new store location opening, our, like how is staffing going and, and staffing up those new store locations as well as with the, uh, uh, the head office location and call centers. Uh, talk about how labor is, is shifting in this environment. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, it's definitely the last, I'd say, six months been tougher. Um, we're not not immune to the same labor market dynamics that I think every business is facing, where uh, turnover was a little bit higher and recruiting's been a little bit tougher. Uh, but we've we've fared pretty well, notwithstanding there's headwinds there. Uh, summer months were a little bit a little bit tougher. We've actually seen in the last month or two, as we've gotten into the post school fall season, hiring has gotten uh, much much better. Uh, I think in our call center, for example, where we ran with a bit of vacancy throughout the summer runs, we're pretty much now fully staffed, and we've got several great large training classes. Seeing similar things in the retail branch network, summer months were really difficult. A uh, number of markets, uh, places like Quebec, where labor has been even tighter, was much dip more difficult to get the full complement. Uh, but the last couple months, things have started to improve, and uh, we've seen turnover begin to gradually reduce. We've seen ability to hire uh, improve. I've seen the same thing in the corporate roles, spring and summer, uh, kind of higher chain turnovers in, in certain positions, particularly technical roles, but uh, we've been able to now in the last couple of months fill many of those positions and it looks like we're in, in much better shape now. So we've kind of gone through the same, you know, overall dynamic that, that the broader market has, uh, but where we sit today, uh, it looks like things are on an improving trend and, and we filled most of our positions, so we're, we're getting in, in better shape as we go here. Okay, great. Um, second question is on uh, is on commissions, and uh, and the commissions earned in Q3 relatively flat to Q2. Um, you, you know, are you learning anything new from uh, from the uptake on uh, on certain ancillary products from Lencare clients, or maybe there's some shifting uh, consumer behaviors on the uh, existing Go Easy uh, uh, 
customers. What's what's going on with <clears throat> excuse me? What's going on with the with the commissions uptake and uh, and how do you expect that to evolve from uh, from the last couple of quarters? Yeah, so no no real uh, notable changes in in trend. Um, you know, probably the only couple comments would be uh, as as our product mix evolves, the uh, the uh, take up rate on those products varies. Um, but probably more relevant here is that the cost of those products vary. So, for example, the effective cost on a per dollar insured basis for the insurance product for, say, a home equity loan where you've got really great hard real estate asset security, much lower default losses, uh, you're going to have a lower effective cost and therefore less effective commission. Uh, and therefore, as that product mix shifts, you might see the commission line evolve um, however, that's not necessarily an indication of take-up per se. On the, uh, the LendCare business, where most of their originations come from a dealer or a merchant or a retail partnership, in, in that channel, point-of-sale finance in general, not specific to LendCare, but just that industry in general, the take-up rate of ancillary products has generally been much lower. Uh, they have started to see some improvement in that performance, particularly by employing centralized teams who follow up with customers and offer them the ability to take other ancillary products or insure their loan. Uh, it's really early days, I think, at developing that specific skill set and capabilities. So I think there's, there's upside there for sure. Um, but those would be some of the dynamics. When you look at our forward guidance on total portfolio yield, which, as you know, as a gradual decline over the next couple of years, albeit the rate of decline is slower, the uh, effective commission rate, if you will, of ancillary products, the take-up of ancillary products, that's all part of what's factored into that gradual yield decline. It's not entirely all interest. It's because of the factors I've noted, which is the effective rate on those products does does shift as you move to some of these other product categories. So that, that's essentially all factored into our economic model. Okay, great. And uh, last one uh, from my end is, uh, is you know, I guess, simply, uh, are there any uh, any further updates on the Brim financial investment and uh, and what your uh, what strategies you're you're employing through that investment? Yeah. Um, so uh, obviously, Brim's a, a, a private company, and so much like during the period of time that we were investors in Paybright as a private company, um, you know, we can only share so much, uh, but uh, I, would, I would share that things are going very well with Brim. Um, they have done a very, very good job at leveraging the capabilities of their platform. Uh, they've signed on uh, several uh, major brand and major bank relationships to use their platform uh, for various capabilities from the actual card, cap card platform uh, to the digital uh, platform to the loyalty program. Uh, so can't say anything about specific um, partners or uh, the uh, specific evolution of their revenue and economics other than that the business has gone and done very well and, and we're very pleased with the partnership and the investment there. Thanks very much. Your last question comes from the line of Jeff Fenwick from Cormark Security. Your line is open. Hi there. Yeah, just just one follow up, and it it uh, tags on to the the answer you just gave on the commission revenue, Jason. The um, you gave that guidance for a slight uptick in the the aggregate uh, gross yield for Q4. Yeah, you know, 
I guess that's a you know full quarter with Lencare and some of the movements in the portfolio. But you know, how do we think about that that tapering happening then? Because this is a bit of a higher level than I would have uh, maybe modeled through the end of the year. Uh, does it does it change meaningfully through the beginning of next year, or is, the, is that sort of blended you know decline there? Maybe maybe a little less steep than I might have thought, and, and again, just sort of keeping in mind your your full year targets that you've given us. But um, just trying to understand that uh, that movement there. Movement. Sure. Yeah. So in, again, in terms of the range that's provided for both yield and losses, um, as I said earlier, it's really predicated on an assumption around a certain product mix. And you know, given now that we have such a wide range of products, each of which is priced at a different point, ranging from as low as you know, 9.9 to 46.9, a very wide range of pricing with a very wide range of losses. Uh, we feel like we've got a pretty good model now at trying to predict the evolution of the mix of those products that we've been able to provide a two-point band for both yield and, and, and losses and consistently uh, and most often fall within that band. Uh, in the last couple of months, we've actually seen pretty good growth in unsecured lending. That tends to come with a slightly higher yield also comes with slightly higher losses. Not surprising, the uh, yield and loss rate uh, for the, the coming quarter uh, is in the higher end. Uh, perhaps over the fourth quarter, we see you know a greater uptick in demand for lower price products like power sports equipment in the winter months, and and then you know that will that will put uh, uh, pressure toward a shift in that trend. So it really does depend on the evolution of the product mix. However, we feel pretty confident, very confident in in the ranges that we've provided. So whether we're in the high end or the low end of the range is really the latitude that we've allowed for, for some shift in product mix that we can't perfectly and precisely always predict. Uh, but the, So the ranges allow for that. But the ranges themselves, we think, will be pretty accurate as to how we see this portfolio evolving given the things that we're investing in, where we're investing our ad dollars, uh, and where we see the growth growth coming from under this, this new merged business with Lencare. So st- still remain confident in the numbers we've provided. And, of course, as that product mix shifts, we'll, we'll provide updates if we, you know, see the, the, the mix shift going one way or the other. Okay. Thanks for that, uh, that color. That's all I had. There are no further questions at this time. I would now like to turn the call back to our presenters for any closing remarks. Okay. Well, thanks, everyone, for uh, joining today. Uh, if there's no more questions, then uh, have a fantastic rest of your week, and we look forward to updating you uh, next quarter when we close year-end in February. Thanks, everyone. Bye now. This concludes today's conference call. Thank you for participating. You may now disconnect. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. 
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.